Okay, shall we talk about Micah a little bit? Let's have a prayer as we get ready to do that. Lord, we praise you and we glorify you. You have asked us to do that because only when we praise and glorify you and only when we worship you, only when we put you in first place, only when we put you on top, only when we allow you to be you and take ourselves away from that pedestal, can we have the blessing and joy and peace and abundance of life that you designed and created for us from the very beginning. We remember that, Lord, now as uh, we open uh, a little tiny window into your mind, into your will, uh, as we open your word. We thank you for Micah. We thank you for all like him who faithfully and courageously uh, spoke your word into their own time, into their own place, into the hearts of their own people, realizing that it's your eternal and timeless word that still speaks to us. So speak to us now as we consider, as we ponder, as we study, and then in that process, transform us. Continue that work of regeneration and renewal, making us into who we are meant to be. For your sake and your glory and your kingdom, we pray. Amen. Okay, are you enjoying Micah? Good. Uh, today, chapter 6, I, I have to say that I uh, probably was kind of selfish when I put the schedule of teaching together because this is one of the best places in all of Scripture to speak from and to teach from, and I wasn't about to give that to Jan or Neil or even both of them put together. So, <laughs> But Micah, of course, we know is speaking to the nation of Israel during a time when the northern kingdom, the northern part of the kingdom is being attacked and ultimately destroyed by the Assyrians. There's also great corruption and upheaval going on in the southern kingdom in the area of Jerusalem. And Micah is speaking the word, the, the prophetic word, uh, the word of truth from God about that situation. And we're going to continue uh, looking at that today. In, uh, and we will encounter actually the phrase uh, that is the theme for our Lenten devotional from Micah 6, uh, verses 6 through 8. But let's read the first five verses first together. Micah 6, 1 through 5. Hear what the Lord says. Rise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the controversy of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a controversy with his people, and he will contend with Israel. O oh, my people, what have I done to you? And what have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I sent you before Moses, I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O oh, my people, remember now what King Balak of Moab devised, what Balaam, son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. Okay, there's lots going on here that is truly important for us. We often talk about the fact that when we talk about God, when we think about God, we must do so with thought forms, with images, with concepts that are from our reality and from our lives. God is bigger than all of that, of course. And so in some sense, we can never say fully and completely everything that needs to be said about God. We can never fully and completely understand it because we have to limit our conversation about God to the limitedness of our minds. 
And so we have to be careful when we're talking about God. But we also have to understand the beauty and the power of speaking about God in terms that we can understand. Almost always, of course, we speak about God in what we call anthropomorphic terms, giving to God human characteristics and traits. We say that God is loving, God is kind, God is uh, long-suffering, God is merciful, or sometimes that God gets angry, that God uh, exercises his vengeance upon the world, and we have to understand those thoughts very, very carefully. Here, Micah is using a way of talking about our relationship with God and our interaction with God that comes from a very specific place within human society, within human culture. And that place, we have a clue uh, about what that place is as we look at the language that's here. And I want to point out a couple of words here. Plead your case. Plead your case. There is a controversy going on. When I say plead your case, where does that take your mind in our culture? A trial, exactly. We are in a courtroom. This is actually one of the popular images of all of the Old Testament prophets to conceive of our conversation and relationship with God as if God is the judge and we are the people being tried. Or sometimes we are the judge of God and God is being tried. Now there's a problem with that, of course, but that's the way the conversation goes sometimes. We're saying, God, why haven't you done these things for me? You're not being a very good God. Well, in this case, we are in a courtroom, so to speak, and it's important for us to understand that. There, there is a controversy. There is litigation between us and God. And God actually is the one uh, who is, is not only the judge, but he's also the lawyer. Uh, he's also the one who's being put on trial. We are the ones being put on trial. There's this big argument going on as if we are in a courtroom, okay? Let's hold that idea in our minds. Now, in a courtroom, in a, in a legal situation, you always have uh, witnesses, right? You have witnesses to what's going on. Or you have a jury that is listening carefully to what's going on. Who are the witnesses and who is the jury in this case? Let's look at the language again. Plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the controversy of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth. The image here is that the very creation itself stands as the ultimate uh, witness and the ultimate jury as God and the people are having a controversy, an argument, okay? Now, picture this as well. God is saying to Israel, we have a problem, Israel. <laughs> I have a problem with you. You have a problem with me. Let's figure out what that problem is and then who gets to win the argument, who gets to win the case. And by the way, the people, in this case, the physical realities that are going to be a witness to all of this, the, the, the jury that's going to judge all of this is the mountains, the hills, the very foundations of the earth itself. Now, if I'm a person and I hear that, what I'm meant to hear is the fact that the mountains and the hills and the very pillars that support the earth, 
that God made are going to be my jury. Right there, we have a very clear understanding of who's going to win this argument. <laughs> who's going to win this case? Remember, in the Psalms, God says sometimes to the people, where were you when I made everything? Putting us in our place, right? Now, we think of that language as, you know, you're being put in your place, you're being, you're being beaten down, you're being knocked down, you're being disregarded, you're being, uh, you're being disrespected. That's not what we mean here. What we mean here is that God is putting things back into the place that they are meant to have, the only actual place that exists. He is God. God is God. God is the one who made the very creation and the existence of the very creation that we are part of as creatures is part of the fundamental reality that we need to understand as we have controversy, as we uh, are engaged in litigation with God. Isn't that a beautiful image? You know, you could do worse than, than to approach the beginning of every day by waking up and saying, I'm living here on God's earth and I'm taking a breath because God allows me to take a breath. You know, maybe that's one of the reasons we're so fond of posting pictures on Facebook of sunrises and sunsets, right? Sunrise and sunset reminds us that there's something way bigger than us, something way more important than us, something way more lasting than us, and that's God. And that's God's plan, God's reality. So we're going into the courtroom. And God is standing there, as I say, in some sense, God is the judge, God is also the lawyer. God is being put on trial in some sense, and so are we. We have an issue with God. Oh, my people, verse 3, oh, my people, what have I done to you? In what have I wearied you? God says, what's your problem, Israel? What is going on here? We know what that's like in a relationship, right? When a relationship is, is, is having trouble in some way, shape, or form. I, I think especially, you know, being the parent of a teenager, right? And the teenager's acting up and acting out. And as a parent, you want to say, what is your problem? Right? Right? And as a parent, you want to say what God says to us? You wouldn't be here if it weren't for me. <laughs> right? You simply wouldn't be here. Um, yeah, I'll go ahead. I don't, I don't care. I'm old. I'll take a risk. Helen has this great saying that she used with the kids often when they would start acting up. She would say, remember, when you were a baby, I could have drowned you if I had wanted to. <laughs> right? Now, we love our children. You know, the, the PC police are probably going to get all over us for saying something like that. But, but that is the reality, Right? Right? We created you, why are you giving me a problem? That's what God is saying here. What is your problem, Israel, right? Remember, Israel, what I've done for you? I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. I gave you amazing leaders. I took care of you through all of your ups and downs. I've done that for all of your history. So what's your problem? I redeemed you from the house of slavery. That event of the Exodus is the pivotal event in the story of the Old Testament. The pivotal event. Gets lots of coverage. It's always referred to. Now, of course, 
the story of the creation is pretty important too. If there had been no creation, there would be no story. We understand that. Genesis is extremely important. But in the stories that unfolds then of God with his people, God comes to Abraham, says, I'm gonna make a great nation of you. That promise for Abraham to have progeny and create a great nation is constantly threatened, never more so than when the tribes of Israel are enslaved and, and languishing in Egypt for hundreds of years and God plucks them away from that disaster, from that end of the story, and God keeps the story going. The pivotal event, God saves Israel when Israel could not save itself. That idea, that concept, that dynamic, that intention of God to save us when we cannot save ourselves, of course, also plays itself out in the life and times and meaning and message of Jesus. But we're a long ways before Jesus in this story. So here we're in a courtroom and God walks in and says, okay, the witnesses are going to be my creation that I made. It's a whole lot bigger than you are. I know some pretty big people, but I don't know anybody that's bigger than a mountain. And I know some pretty strong people, but I don't know anybody who's stronger than the very foundations of the earth, right? This is the controversy that we're going to have with God. This is the conversation that we're going to have with God. You notice how Micah is, is doing what, um, what we do in worship. You may not have noticed this, this pattern, but you need to know it in worship. We were asking about where worship is going to be. And, and in all of our worship, when we begin worship, where do we begin our worship? When we come together for church. We start with telling God how amazing he is. After we say hi to each other, after we say, hey, it's great that we're all here, isn't that nice? Then we talk first about God. We give God praise, glory, honor, adoration. We focus our attention our God, on God remembering that he's the one who made everything. He's the reason we're here. Without him, we wouldn't be here. And then we have the conversation with God. That's how our worship begins. Now, God has been making a case against Israel for Israel's unfaithfulness. Not just their problem in believing in God and holding on to that belief in God. The first five chapters, we've already looked at how uh, the people are worshiping other gods, how they are so tempted to give up on their faith in this one God as the only true God. Not only are they believing wrongly, not only are they prostituting themselves with other gods that are really not gods at all, but they are acting differently because of it. They are not following God's law, God's way of living that is the way he made us to live. Anything less than that, anything other than that is an affront to God and it ultimately ends in disaster. That's what's going going on. And finally God says, okay, we're going to have, we're going to have litigation over this. You're being hauled into the courtroom. And God says, what is your problem, Israel? What is your problem? Remember what I've done for you. I'm the one who has given you your very existence and you have a problem. So then we continue the conversation. One of the hard things about reading any of the prophets and other parts of scripture as well, but especially in the prophets, is that you have a conversation and you have lots of different characters speaking at different times, but you're not always told who is speaking. 
Between verses 5 and verses 6, we have a shift in who is speaking. First five verses of chapter 6 are God speaking to us, of course, through the voice of Micah. And then we should, and, and maybe we should insert in here something that's actually not in the text, and then we should insert right before verse 6, and then Israel responded to God. God said this, and then Israel responded to God. So let's read verses 6 through 8 of chapter of Micah. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? You've heard this before, haven't you? Don't think that you know it all, though. Let's look at it. It's one of the most beautiful expressions. It's not only poetic, but it is filled with powerful images that we can easily remember. And it's also filled with, in a sense, the heart of the gospel, with one of the central messages, if not the central message. Uh, that God has for us. That is all contained in what Israel says back to God. Now, there's lots going on, like any conversation, like any, any, any dialogue that's going on, there's lots of stuff happening between the lines, so to speak. God has said to Israel, you're guilty. And Israel is saying back to God, you're right. You're right. And then Israel says, how can I make it right again with God? How can I come back to God and receive forgiveness and restoration and renewal? What do I do? Israel, as an individual, this, this sounds like an individual that is speaking, or it could be the whole community. It really is both. That's another thing that can be confusing as we're reading uh, the prophets. Sometimes it's the singular voice, sometimes it's a plural voice. Sometimes it's God's voice, sometimes it's, some, it's the prophet's voice, or sometimes it's Israel's voice. Here it's Israel's voice, both in singular and in plural. With what shall we come before God? With what shall I come before God? I have totally, totally, totally messed up, and now I've got to come back to my creator with my tail between my legs. What am I going to do? That's the question. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself, lower myself to the place where myself has always supposed to have been? How am I going to do that before God? And then there's a series of questions. Shall I come with burnt offerings, with calves a year old, or maybe thousands of rams, or maybe ten thousands of rivers of oil? Remember that much of the worship life of Israel came to be focused on a system of sacrifice in the temple in Jerusalem. That system of sacrifice was highly refined, highly developed. There are some good reasons that it existed, and there are, it's not entirely theologically bankrupt to think about sacrifice. Sacrifice, of course, has been part of most human religion, whether it's been from the Jewish tradition or the Judeo-Christian tradition or not, sacrifice is involved. There's something in the human spirit that wants to say that when I have messed up, 
I need to offer something back to God to express my sorrow and to pay God for what I have done. And in this case, we're talking about several specific things. First of all, a calf a year old. Do you remember, we just came from come out of the Christmas season and, and talking about Joseph and Mary bringing Jesus to the temple as an infant to dedicate him and Mary to be purified, and they sacrificed two doves. If you were poor, you were allowed to take an inexpensive animal or an inexpensive amount of grain and sacrifice that. Kill it or burn it, okay? If you were richer, you might take a calf. A calf is a very expensive animal. Not many cows in the Middle East, okay? If you're to take a calf, that's a pretty significant offering to God. And that's the first thing that Israel here thinks about. I need to offer a significant gift to God as a way of saying I'm sorry, as a way of restoring the relationship between God and me. But that's only the beginning of it. A calf a year old? Well, hmm, maybe it needs to be not just one calf, but thousands of rams. Anybody here in the sheep herding business, in the ram herding business, right? Thousands of rams? Probably the only person in Israel who would have the financial capacity to offer thousands of animals as a sacrifice would be the king. But then it doesn't stop there. How about ten thousands of rivers of oil? Ten thousands of rivers of oil. Anybody here ever pressed olives to make olive oil? Has anybody here done that? I had somebody yesterday at La Costa Glen who had done that in Israel. You know, kind of one of those touristy things. Make your own olive oil, right? And I asked her, I said, how much olive oil did you make? And she came up to me later and said, you know, I think maybe you know, maybe like a quarter of a pint, a few tablespoons of olive oil after all this work. Can you think of how much olive oil it would take to fill up 10,000s of rivers of oil? This is becoming a fantastical number. Nobody in the world, not the whole world together, would have thousands of rivers of olive oil, right? You notice the progression that's going on here. As Israel thinks deeply about what it owes to God and how it's going to pay God back for its prostitution of its faith with God and for its failing to live according to the way that God wants. First, it starts with a very expensive sacrifice and then a sacrifice so expensive that maybe only the king could afford it and then something that not even the king could make happen, ten thousands of rivers of oil. But there's one more thing in the list. How about my firstborn for my transgression? What is the single most precious thing to us in the whole world if it's not our children? Now, in much of ancient human religion, and maybe still in a couple places in the world today, we're not sure, there grew this idea that in order to make God happy with you, you had to kill your child. Not just your child after you'd had 14 of them, but your firstborn. You might not ever have one again. There's evidence that in Israel's history, perhaps the Jews themselves very early in history had practiced child sacrifice. There certainly is evidence that it was around them everywhere 
and that God was not interested in child sacrifice. That's the story of Abraham and Isaac. You remember the story of Abraham and Isaac? God says to Abraham, you're going to be the father of a great nation. And then God says, take your first child, your real child, the child of the covenant and promise, Isaac, and kill him. And Abraham says, I don't get this, but okay, that's what I'm going to do. And then God stops him and provides a ram in order to be sacrificed. This is a way of Israel saying God does not want us to kill our firstborn children, that God has a bigger plan in mind, but that tells us how important our firstborn children are. Israel asks the question here, if I'm going to restore a relationship between God and me as a, as a person, as the whole nation, maybe what that's going to require is even my firstborn child. Now, I know most of you here have children. Most of you here have been exposed to other people's children. And there are times it is tempting to sacrifice your children. <laughs> but think of the pathos of that. Israel's going through this. This is kind of a reflection of a spiritual crisis here for Israel. What can I do? But then Israel knows the answer to the question. And here is what I think is one of the most important passages of the Old Testament. He has told you. He's told us already. We know. We know. We have no excuse for not knowing. He told us from the very beginning. He told us what's good. Here's what we're supposed to do. Not sacrifice a calf, not thousands of rams, not ten thousands of rivers of oil, not even our firstborn children. What does the Lord require? This is not optional. This is not a suggestion. This is not an opinion. This is the one who set up the foundations of the earth and then built the whole of creation on top of that. That one says, this is the way it's done, period. And what is it? To do justice, to love kindness or mercy, to walk humbly with your God. You've heard that phrase before. If you memorize that phrase, you do well. If you think of that phrase 800 times a day, you do well. This is where the Judeo-Christian tradition teaches us what religion actually is. Religion is not just believing something, it is doing something because of what we believe. If you believe wrongly, you will do the wrong thing. You can say you believe the right thing, but if you do the wrong thing, then clearly you don't believe the right thing. And if you do not do the right thing, then it makes no difference what you say you believe. What does the Lord require? That you change your opinion about a theological conundrum? That you sign up to some statement about who you think God is? That you say, I believe this? That's not what's said here. What does the Lord require that you do something? And then we have that list. It's an important list. To do justice. The other word that we can use here, English word that we can use to translate that word uh, that, that uh, uh, Micah uses here is righteousness. I know in our society today, we talk a lot about justice, social justice, if you will, and it's very important to talk about. It is a very biblical thing to talk about it. The Bible talks about it all the time. What we're talking about in the question of justice or the question of righteousness 
is the question of doing life the right way. And doing life the right way has to do with treating other people the right way. And notice I'm using carefully the word the. That's an exclusive word. That means there's only one right way to treat people. Now, there are lots of variations of what that right way is, but there's only one right way. That way is spoken of here as loving kindness, hesed, steadfast love, mercy. The only right way to treat anybody is in a loving way. Love itself is sometimes difficult. It's complex. It's not always as easy as it seems, and sometimes it's not very cushy and warm and fuzzy. Sometimes it's pretty tough, but it's still love. The only right way to treat people is lovingly, and the only right way to exercise God's justice, to live in the perfect way that God means for us to live, that actually achieves justice for everyone is with love. Now, let me ask you this question for just a second. Give me some answers. When we say justice or righteousness, what does that mean to you? If I said define justice for me, what does that mean? Shout it out. Something is righted that has been wrong, right? That's our criminal justice system. That's kind of going back to the courtroom almost, right? Somebody has stolen from somebody. Somebody has mistreated somebody. There's a whole long list of the ways that we do not treat each other lovingly. And the justice system is meant to restore right relationship or to make people pay or to put things back the way they're meant to be. Exactly. Equal. Equal justice before the law, right? This equal implies that justice, according to God, or righteousness is meant for every body. That also is a very exclusive term. Everybody, translated into Southern, is all y'all, <laughs> right? There is no body who is not to be treated equally as everybody else. Regardless of, you can go through a long list, regardless of gender, regardless of race, regardless of national origin, regardless of age, regardless of physical abilities, regardless of mental abilities. It's a long, long list that we shouldn't even have to put together because everybody is such a simple way of describing it, isn't it? And yet, it's no secret that human societies have never been able to achieve that. We have always, in some ways, egregious ways in everybody's history and in the world today and in the world that you and I live in, the world that you and I participate in, we have not achieved equal justice or righteousness for everybody. We've never gotten there, but we get closer. We get closer. Sometimes we step further away, sometimes we get closer. But that's what Micah says is the way that we come back to God and actually do what God wants us to do. And then finally, Micah says to walk humbly with your God. It's a fascinating project, uh, progression. And, and in a way, it is a complete way of looking at what 
the life of faith in God is all about. Not just faith in believing, but then faithfulness, living according to that belief. We want righteousness. We want things to be the way that they were in the Garden of Eden before Adam and Eve started getting involved with the conversation. Right? That's what righteousness is. The condition of perfect righteousness, the condition of perfect justice is going back to the Garden of Eden when everything is meant to be the way it is. Of course, the story of the Garden of Eden is that we screwed it up because we did not fulfill this last phrase that Micah mentions here, to walk humbly with your God. No, we decided, with Adam and Eve's decision, we decided that we knew better. Humility went out the door. Walking with God went out the door. We put ourselves in God's place, and that messed up everything from there on out. The only way that everything is put back together the way it's meant to be put together in the first place is if we put God back up where God is supposed to be and don't try to get there ourselves. Walk humbly with God. When we walk humbly with God, then we realize that God was right when God said you're supposed to love each other. That's fundamentally the issue between all people, individuals or entire nations of people, is trying to find a way to treat each other equally, lovingly, so that we restore the conditions of the Garden of Eden. That's what this is all about. And so in every situation of your life that you look at how you would want to, to know that you could walk according to God's way, how you could have the relationship with God, you have to ask, is this just? Is it right? Is it loving? Is it kind? Is it following God who is God and not me? It's a very simple progression, but so, so important. Let's finish off this chapter very quickly. Then uh, if you have some questions or comments, be ready to come up to the microphone and ask those. Verses 9 through 16. The voice of the Lord cries to the city, it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear, O tribe and assembly of the city. Can I forget the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is accursed? Can I tolerate wicked scales and a bag of dishonest weights? Your wealthy are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies with tongues of deceit in their mouths. Therefore, I have begun to strike you down, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat but not be satisfied, and there shall be a gnawing hunger within you. You shall put away but not save, and what you save I will hand over to the sword. You shall sow but not reap. You shall tread olives but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes but not drink wine. For you have kept the statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab, and you have followed their counsels. Therefore, I will make you a desolation and your inhabitants an object of hissing, so you shall bear the scorn of my people. This is puppies and rainbows and unicorns and God loves me. <laughs> this is a description of what life is like when you live far from the pathways and blessing of God and maybe have everything there is in life, but you don't have life itself. Notice, you're going to, you're going to have your grapes, you're going to have your olives, you're going to have everything, but you have nothing. It all falls apart. Part of the sin 
of Israel that Micah is speaking about is the sin of the few at the top who have done everything they can to maintain their power and their wealth at the expense of everyone else. And that's all going to go away. It's all going to end in nothing. It's not just about the rich and powerful at the very top though, because everybody participates in that system and everybody buys into that mentality that if I can only get to where they are, everything will be fine. That's not what it's about. What is it about? It's about that condition in human society where everybody has what they need. Everybody has enough. Everybody is taking care of everybody else. That's one of the ways I describe justice or righteousness in the world that is achieved only through the exercise of love and only as we make God, God, and we are not. So let me stop there. I can preach about this stuff forever. This is, this is so rich. This is so much at the heart of the gospel, so much at the story of Israel. Ask your questions or make your comments. Anybody have anything to say? Pretty heavy stuff, isn't it? Let me point you to the questions that are here um, because I think they're, even though I wrote them, I still think they're pretty good. Sometimes I look, I, I look back at stuff and say, what in the world was I thinking, right? Uh, go back into God's courtroom. You are hauled into a courtroom and God is there and the whole creation stands as a witness against you. How's that going to feel? What's that going to be like? What are you going to say, right? God reminds Israel about his faithfulness to Israel. How has God been faithful to you? God says to Israel, hey, I rescued you from Egypt. How has God rescued you from slavery in Egypt? What has God done in your life that reminds you of God's love and tells you about how God is present and active in your world, that gives you hope, that gives you strength? What kinds of things do we try to offer to God? What kinds of things do we try to offer to God? Maybe that God doesn't even want. The whole system of sacrifice of animals and all that stuff went away with the destruction of the temple. Israel finally again began to realize once again that the business of God was about living in the correct way, not about bringing important precious objects to be thrown away, to be burned up and misused. Um, what do we try to offer to God, right? And then how do we do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with God? And how do we not do that? Where is there injustice in our world today? And what are we responsible for doing about it? It's a very important question. Okay? Last chance. Going once, going twice. Now you must pray with me one more time. God, thank you for teaching us again about who you are and how you have made us to live successfully happily, joyfully, righteously with you. Give us the strength, give us the power, give us the wisdom to do that for your sake and the sake of others to the end that one day your whole creation will be restored and we will enjoy you forever. In Jesus we pray, amen. God bless you. Next Wednesday, you don't have to wear a mask unless somebody changes their mind. So <laughs> God bless.